Goethe's novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther, is one of the greatest achievements in the history of Western literature. And remarkably enough, it is in some respects the total inverse of Goethe's Faust, which is also one of the great achievements of Western literature. Instead of the immense complexity that we see in Faust, what we see in The Sorrows of Young Werther is immense simplicity. The most basic and pedestrian sort of human experience transformed into a description of internal emotional life, which is, I think, unsurpassed in the history of literature. Now, Goethe wrote The Sorrows of Young Werther in 1774, when he himself was 24 years old. And he wrote it in four weeks. And that's the kind of thing that just makes you shrug your shoulders and say, well, okay, some men are better than I am. <laughs> they just are naturally smarter, and I have to live with that. And all of you at home probably have to live with that as well, unless you're going to kick out something at that level. And that's one of the possibilities. It spurs us on towards greater achievement. And Werther is, in some respects, a sort of paradigm of the passionate, almost crazy, crazily emotional young man. Uh, I didn't get a chance to read this novel until I was 25, and I was tremendously moved by it. It's the most powerful two-hour read you're ever going to see. It's uh, 80 or 100 pages. Uh, I like best the translation by Victor Lange, but if you have the German, do read it in the German. There's few novels more luminous and beautiful than this one, and it's accessible. It's not like trying to, cut, to hack your way through the forest of Faust. This is something that begs to be read. It's just so lovely and elegant. I remember after I'd read this, I gave this to my roommate, a friend that knew me in college. And he said, after he read it, I mean, he ran through it in two hours really quickly, and he said, Mike, you used to say stuff like this all the time. And in fact, I, I identified with this immediately, and I thought at the time, when I was 20 or 21 years old, the age of Werther, that I had invented emotion, <laughs> that, it, that, it was my, that, that I had come up with it for the first time. And part of the point of this novel is that everyone, every generation must invent love uniquely and as if for the first time. What we are talking about here is one of the perennial tendencies in human nature. This tendency is taken to its logical extreme, and we get the connection between sex and death, which is so occupies Freud's writing. And ultimately, he talks about the limitations of the human mind, the limitations of living entirely within one's own soul, of kind of denigrating the external world, which is one of the characteristics of romantic young men, both uh, at, uh, in the novel and Goethe at 24. Now, this is such a powerful novel that it was immediately a sensational success all across Europe, and immediately at 24 years old, Goethe becomes one of the leading intellectuals in Europe on the basis of four weeks' work. Nice work if you can get it. It's so powerful that people who are frustrated in love, unhappy in love, often imitate Werther and ultimately commit suicide. In other words, they dress up in the same clothing as Werther, and they go and shoot themselves or drown themselves or kill themselves in some way, and you find in their pocket a copy of The Sorrows of Young Werther. It was so influential, it's not a joke, as a matter of historical fact, they did this. It's so powerful that it was banned. It was put on the list of forbidden books, Right? You couldn't get access to it. And later in his life, Werther, thinking back upon the uncanny power of this novel, says, you know what? They should have banned this. That's actually not a bad idea. People really are going to kill themselves. I guess I don't know my own strength. And at 24, who does? Now, the characters are, in some respects, 
the most interesting part of this. There's not a lot of plot. And Werther is one of the kind of archetypical figures in all of Western literature. He's a naive, self-absorbed egoist. He spends most of his life talking to himself. He is, to, extent, to a great extent, oblivious of the external world, and insofar as the external world has any interest to him, it's only as something for him to strive for, as an object of his own desires. Um, he is a romantic genius in the sense that he's a very talented, clever young man with great potential. It's just that he has a little bit too much of everything. You might want to define romanticism as um, an art artistically a loss of a sense of proportion. All the romantic writers and also all the romantic musicians have no sense of proportion. There's a little too much of everything. And Werther has a lot too much of everything. He's too self-absorbed. He's too egotistical. He does not know himself. He has all the characteristic defects of superior young men, but taken so far that this superiority becomes self-destructive. It becomes nihilistic. He lives through his emotions and for his emotions. The rest of the world is simply a vehicle by which to get an emotional response. Now, another problem that Werther has, that other romantics have, is that he is unable to find a niche in society. He hates bourgeois society with its prudent, calculating activities with its pursuit of wealth, with its pursuit of status and power, and he's not interested in accommodating himself to the necessities of practical economic life. On the other hand, he also can't find a home in aristocratic society. Remember that Germany at this time is highly stratified socially, and Werther, not being an aristocrat, is unable to find a place in aristocratic society. One of the most important sections of this book is a fairly brief passage in part two, where he's at an aristocratic party and he is forced to leave on account of the fact that the aristocrats don't want to mingle with him. And of course, he fumes and rails against convention. He spends a great deal of time railing against convention. All the romantics do, but Werther rails more than most. And he decides that these would-be aristocrats aren't worthy of him on account of the fact that most of them are insipid and useless. They do have aristocratic status, but they don't really match up to him man for man, which actually is true, but it doesn't do Werther any good. So corrupt society thwarts the talented man, the natural man. Werther is very fond of things like nature, children, uh, untutored, naive people, the illiterate, and all these are characteristic qualities of the romantic movement in general. This is one of the great storm and, storm and drang uh, achievements. That's at the far edge of Romanticism. If you want to see the essence of Romanticism, look at German culture in the early part of the, 18th, uh, the uh, 19th century. Um, you could go to Goethe, but you could also go to Beethoven as well. Now, we have uh, an interesting figure in Werther, and enti the entire novel, or almost the entire novel, is in the voice of Werther which is written in letters, and he does almost all the talking. And you get the impression that that tells us something about the characteristics of Werther. In other words, he doesn't listen to other people. It's almost impossible to talk to. He lives through himself and for himself, and he's entirely selfish and egotistical. In other words, although you sort of admire him in a way, he's not a very likable character. Right? He's not self-sacrificing, not devoted to some higher ideal. He actually is devoted to himself. He becomes ultimately solipsistic. He's the only thing in the universe. The rest of the world exists for his pleasure and convenience. Now, the opposite of Werther right, is Albert. Albert gets married to 
Charlotte, I'll talk about her in a second, and he represents bourgeois prudence, practicality, solidity. I hated Albert when I read this book first. I mean, he's everything I despised, and he's everything Werther despises, and all untamable and irresponsible young men are going to hate Albert, and that's part of the idea. And there are, he's, he represents the various social forces that are trying to bring this furious young man into line. And he represents solidity, practicality, a sense of proportion, all of which are things that Werther himself disdains. Now, someone who actually doesn't figure in the novel, except at the very end, is a, a kind of not terribly well-sketched-out figure named Wilhelm, who is the correspondent that Werther writes to in the course of this novel. And he ultimately talks a little bit towards the end when we get to the conclusion, but for the most part, he just serves as a foil, someone that is sympathetic to Werther, and Werther doesn't allow people to be sympathetic to him for the most part, that he can write to and, and pour his heart out to. In addition to these two gentlemen, we also have Charlotte. Charlotte is the most beautiful woman in the world. Charlotte is the Ewige Weiblich that we get at the end of Faust. She is the eternal feminine. She is something for him to strive for, something that he wants with all his heart and soul. She is the most valuable thing in the universe. She is the center of all of creation. All the planets revolve around her. And the difficulty is, is that she is unimaginably commonplace. In other words, she has almost no personality, she is one of the most boring women in all of literature. She is passive and timid and insipid, and it is really hard to get any sympathy with her at all. The problem here is that Werther has mythically inflated Charlotte to the point where she is something analogous to Helen of Troy, the universally desirable thing. But not exactly universally desirable because Werther doesn't care what the universe thinks. He desires it, and the universe only goes as far as the limits of his skull. It exists within his mind, and anything else is more or less superfluous. It's an epiphenomenon to his experience. He's found something he likes. He latches onto it. There we go. That's the center of the universe. That's the zero, zero point in our Cartesian graph. It's the way in which we map all the other events in life. He is, strictly speaking, crazy. But he's crazy in a really unique and wonderful way, a way in which, which gets repeated every time someone discovers love for the first time. The problem is most of us make some accommodation to reality. For Werther, if reality won't make an accommodation with him, there's no deal. Right? So this, in some respects, represents the solitary, solipsistic, romantic ego. Right? The lone wolf who is unable to, to bend to social conventions, who molds reality to suit himself. He, in, in another cir historical circumstance, he might have been a hero. He might have been a Napoleon. He might have been a, a Goethe. But instead, due to the simple facts of fate, he is forced to confront the, untamed, the consequences of his untamed emotion. And sex and lust and desire ultimately leads to death. It ultimately leads to a negation of this life. Now, beyond that, there are a number of kind of small characters, and almost all of them are women and children. You might want to say that one of the characteristic qualities of the romantic novel is women and children first. Right? Remember yesterday I talked about a, uh, a characteristic novel of the Enlightenment, Robinson Crusoe, that has no family life, that has no women or children, and that has essentially no emotion in it? Well. People got tired of that after a while, and that's why Romanticism comes in directly after the cultural trends of the Enlightenment. Romanticism is a rebellion against the cold, 
artificial scientific formality of the Enlightenment. And particularly, we see that in music, but we also see it in literary art. It's hard to think of what romantic science would look like, but it's not hard to think of what, roman of what romantic novels or romantic poems would look like. This is perhaps the greatest short uh, example, or most, the greatest epitome of the romantic novel and of the romantic hero or anti-hero. So women and children first. He meets uh, peasants that he likes. He meets natural people that he likes. The people he doesn't like are associated with big social institutions. Clergymen, disgusting. They have no understanding of real value. Businessmen, swine, interested in accumulating more money. No one really understands that a man of sensitivity and taste goes into the countryside with his Greek copy of Homer and sits there and absorbs direct beauty itself. That's what Werther spends a lot of his time doing. Why? Because why would he want to talk to anyone else? The rest of the world is just a show between his ears. The, West, the, the external world is essentially not real for him. It's there, and it may make him a little bit crazy. It may upset him once in a while, but he essentially denies the reality of, ex, of the external world and says, what I experience is the only reality. I am reality unto myself. All romantic heroes would like to be God. Failing that, they would like to worship themselves. We will talk a little bit about the connection between the religious impulse and Werther's kind of solipsistic nihilism that becomes crazier over time. First, though, I want to talk about the form of this novel. The form is wonderful. It's inspired. There's no other way to, way to describe it. It's an epistolary novel, which is to say it's a novel made up of letters. Now, this serves a myriad of important functions. First of all, it allows Werther to do all the talking, which is his preferred mode of existence. In other words, his idea of a conversation is talking to, some extra, to, to someone or something else without having them reply. If they do reply, he may read it so that he has some grist for his mill so he can keep on talking. But mostly, Werther talks to himself. He doesn't want to listen to the external world. The external world isn't real or important unless it gives him something to get excited about, in which case, well, he'll put up with it. But the only value that it has is that it gets him excited. It gets him going. If you think of something like uh, the monologues or the digressions that we get in Shakespeare, where uh, a character comes out and speaks in a soliloquy, talks to himself, there's a certain loss of realism there. It's hard to do that for an extended period of time without the conclusion that you're talking to someone that belongs in Bellevue. Right? If you think about, uh, I don't know, what would be an example? Uh, the, uh, the soliloquy of Edmund in King Lear, where he goes out and says, that Thou nature art my goddess, and to thy law my services abound. Uh, you know, legitimate fine word, legitimate all that stuff. If he goes on for a few more paragraphs, we're going to have to lock him up. Right? In other words, there's a certain loss of realism when someone says, I'm going to now talk to myself about important philosophical issues and develop my character. You can't do that for 100 pages. I mean, it's just not going to work. So we need some vehicle through which we're going to get that. And the way we do it is these letters. In other words, the only letters we're getting here are the letters of, Ger uh, of uh, Werther to his friend. All right? We don't get the friend's letters back. Apparently, uh, Werther receives them, and he may even read them. But it doesn't really make all that much difference to him, because what anybody else says doesn't matter to this guy. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody that's 19 years old and in love? <laughs> Do they listen to you? Do they want to hear what you think? They know you're more prudent. They know you're more wise, but you're not real. Their feelings are the only reality. I mean, this is absolutely true. And this gets rediscovered every generation and will be around as long as people are. Goethe was 24 when he wrote this, in four weeks. Well, he's a better man than I am. What this does, it makes possible the idea that 
No one can talk to Werther. He is solipsistic. What he, we are confronting here is the fact that when we take this stance towards the world to its logical extreme, it becomes nihilistic and self-destructive. Werther ultimately cannot deal with the consequences of his rejection of society, his embracing of nature. As Aristotle said, human beings are social animals. Well, all except for Werther. Werther is a natural animal, a natural man, who withdraws from society because it's corrupt. Bourgeois society is disgusting and he doesn't want to deal with them. Aristocratic society won't have them and it's made up of idiots anyway. So the natural man, the solitary ego, withdraws. Now, let's think about the plot. One of the problems here is that it's amazing how little plot there is. It's as simple and pedestrian as you can conceivably imagine. And not only that, but it's amazing that it is possible to create great art out of something that's as common as household dust. Right? I mean, we see it all over the world. Young people encountering love for the first time that are just in their own world and we're unable to talk to them. Werther, uh, Goethe takes that and universalizes it, gives us a real enduring statement about what that's like. What happens is something like this. Boy meets girl, falls in love, and finds out that the girl is already engaged. Who's she engaged to? Disgusting, swinish, bourgeois Albert. Now, he's a generous, noble-hearted young man, doesn't want to interfere with his beloved. And so they sort of have a chaste, platonic love that becomes more and more intense. Remember that platonic love is highly sexual. Right? Make no mistake about that. It's a kind of misnomer to think of platonic love as being disembodied. It's just highly spiritual as well. Now, in the first book, we see exclusively the voice of Werther. In other words, no one else does any talking in that book except him. It's only his letters to Wilhelm. And we see him become more and more absorbed with Charlotte. Now, the only difficulty is, is that there is nothing, absolutely nothing interesting about Charlotte. She has no personality. She is timid. She is passive. She is insipid. And Werther thinks that she's Helen of Troy. Right? He will face any danger in order to be with her. The children love Charlotte. Well, because she's a romantic heroine. And the children love Werther because he's Werther. And Werther loves the children because they're at least innocent and uncorrupt and all that kind of stuff. And we see these idyllic scenes of Werther in nature and Werther dealing with children and peasants and Charlotte. And we get a, a lovely idyllic situation except for the fact that society has married her off to disgusting, swinish, level-headed, prudent Albert. And there are some very interesting scenes narrated, of course, only in Werther's letters, which means to say we don't get an objective narrator talking about people talking. Rather, we get Werther's right, direct discourse about what Albert said to him. And Albert says things like, you know, son, you ought to get a job. Have you thought about doing something useful in the world? And Werther says, well, I am doing something useful. I'm, I'm living. I'm experiencing. I'm, I'm on the cutting edge of reality. And the implication is you, swine, right, have no idea what it is to be alive. Right? I don't want to hear any more from you. You can't imagine two more polar opposites than Werther and Albert. Well, increasingly, there is pressure for, on Werther to do something. He feels an emotional attraction towards Charlotte, but she's married, or she, she's a betrothed. They can't, I mean, it's just not going to work. He doesn't want to try and force her out of this marriage. That's not going to work, and it'll ruin her reputation. Think about the social conventions of 19th century Germany. It's not going to happen. So, in other words, failed, un impossible love. It's not really unrequited love because insofar as Charlotte has any emotions at all and has any interesting qualities at all, she sort of loves Werther but she can't decide what to do. She's not a romantic hero or heroine. She's not this figure driven by immense uncontrollable passions. Only Werther is. 
Now, it's worth noting here that in these letters, he talks about, first of all, his pantheistic love of nature. Uh, Goethe had spent a great deal of time studying Spinoza, and he immediately grafted himself onto Spinoza's approach to, uh, to philosophy. It's not that Werther and Spinoza have anything in common except, you know, nine-digit IQs, right? In fact, you, you could hardly imagine a philosopher more antagonistic to the romantic thing that we see, in, the romantic tendencies we see in Goethe. But what both of them find is a god, a transcendent god, imminent in nature. And that's why he gravitates towards Spinoza. And Spinoza is often accused of pantheism, right, rightly or wrongly, and Goethe immediately bought into that. He really liked that idea. And we see that reflected in Werther. Werther keeps, talk, he keeps saying, people talk too much. They should draw more. I'm tired of listening to these people. He doesn't listen at all, actually, but he keeps saying, people are always jabbering at me. Why don't they leave me alone? And, I mean, we all know people like this, or at least we, perhaps we've experienced this ourselves. I know I was like this at that age. Except that, you know, I didn't put a bullet through my brain. I didn't have quite this level of emotion. But occasionally you see things like that occur. Well, not only is he in love with nature, he conflates his passion for Charlotte with religious ecstasy. In other words, he's constantly having mystical visions. His problem, the problem is that this mystical vision is not some ethereal apparition, not something generated by God, it's generated by nature. And it's not an, an apparition, a, a, a substanceless form. What it is is a woman that he has mythically inflated right, to something like the Statue of Liberty. In other words, it's outside the human scale. She is the possessor of all human virtue. She is the best conceivable woman. The difficulty is, is that she, the real Charlotte has nothing to do with that. Also, if you get the chance, um, just as a kind of an aside, Charlotte is kind of an interesting figure. Thomas Mann, in the 20th century, wrote a book called Lotta in Weimar. In other words, Lotta comes back, or Return of Lotta Part Two. And then she finally gets a personality in everything. It's kind of an ironic novel, a very funny novel, but also quite interesting and serious. If you manage to read Werther and like it, you'll like Mann's novel as well. Well, the book one closes, and he's decided, look, I have to get away. I have to move away. I'm going crazy. And you can see a gradual erosion of Werther's sanity in the process of writing these letters. I mean, they get crazier and crazier and wilder and wilder. And he becomes less and less inclined to dialogue, and he spends more and more of his time talking to himself and becoming morbidly introspective and withdrawn and rejecting the world and society and all the things that might be expected of a normally adjusted human being. Now, Werther leaves in book two, and he continues writing letters to his friend. And these letters become less and less connected to reality. He moves away from Charlotte, and he begins work for an ambassador. And he starts out kind of liking the ambassador. He's a man with some literary ability. He's widely read. He kind of likes the ambassador. He engages in affairs of state. And of course, this, in some respects, is connected to Werther's later career. Werther, I mean, rather, Goethe's later career. Not only was Goethe one of the greatest poets and dramatists of Western culture, he was also a professional politician. He was involved in the politics of Weimar. And in addition to that, he was also a great scientist. And in addition to that, he also made original contributions to things like botany and the theory of color. In other words, he was a truly universal genius, and he had the Midas touch intellectually. Everything he touched, or almost everything he touched, turned to gold. So Werther is, in some respects, like that. He has the germ that Werther has inside him, the potential to do nearly anything and do it exceedingly well. The difficulty is, is that he can't get Lotta out of his mind because, frankly, he lives entirely in his own experience. He doesn't recognize the significance of the external world. He returns to see Lotta, 
fatally, of course. And Albert objects to this. You've got to figure that bourgeois, prudent, disgusting Albert is going to get, this is going to get on his nerves after a while. But of course, since he has almost no passions, he's not able to muster much in the way of jealousy. Mostly he says, well, what will people think? And you stop and think about this. Werther is, is in love with his wife, and he's worried about public opinion which shows you what we're dealing with here. What will people think? I don't have any passions. It really doesn't bother me if he's in love with my wife. I'm hardly in love with my life. I hardly really know what love is. Werther knows a little bit too well. If you were able to, to cut Werther's degree of emotion in half and give it to Albert, you might have well-balanced human beings. Right? And give a little of Albert's prudence to Werther because he's got a little too much. And they have a number of discussions which he says, well, when are you going to get a job? When are you going to settle down? When are you going to take things seriously? And he says, I already take things altogether too seriously. You don't understand, Albert. And of course, Albert doesn't understand. And they have arguments back and forth where they talk about, for example, the nature of emotion. And he says, well, Albert says, well, emotion is a good thing up to a point. It's nice in, in kids and old ladies, but you really don't want to get all gushy, do you? And Werther just looks at him with a kind of contempt, saying, mm, I, I can't really talk. I can't be in the same room with this guy. He's just too much. So, I mean, they part. They're a sort of oil and water that never can possibly mix. I mean, they represent the right and left hands of our brain or something, or the, the emotional and rational part, however you want to split it up. Well, eventually, he starts, is, comes back and starts coming around more and more, and Albert says, hey, look, what are people going to think? This looks bad. You know, I want you to give this guy some room. He keeps coming over every day while I'm at work. There's got to be something wrong here. But of course, although it's a highly emotional and ultimately sexual love, it's a completely chaste love. In other words, um, Werther is not living in the world of the flesh, in the world of physical reality. So naturally, they don't have sex. I mean, he hardly touches her. He wants to look at her as a sort of icon of that which is desirable. She is die ewige Weiblich, right? the eternal feminine, the ultimately creative thing that justifies our existence, the realization of value in this world. And of course, he thinks he's discovered it for the first time, and this is the only example of it. Everyone that discovers this for the first time thinks that they've discovered the only example of it. Well, ultimately, he breaks down, and Charlotte says, hey, look, there's a problem here. Albert objects to your presence, and much as I like you, why don't you not come every day and spend all your time, you know, kind of looking at me, kind of being dreamy and being Werther? And he says, he confesses his love for her, and it's a chaste love, but it's a profound and you know, kind of desperately moving love. And he kisses her for the first and last time. And she, of course, withdraws. Why? Because she's a virtuous, but also conventional German housewife. And she's not looking, for, I mean, she is in love with Werner, but she can't admit that to herself because she doesn't have these driving passions. She says, the best thing I could do, she's thinking to herself, would be to marry him off to one of my friends. That way there's no sexual threat, Albert won't be ticked off, and I can see him all the time and there won't be a problem. So she, she, thinks, she runs through the list of her friends and says, no, she, she wouldn't be right, and no, she wouldn't be right, and no, she really doesn't deserve him, and no, she really doesn't deserve me either. And after running through all her friends, she realizes there's no one that really, really deserves something like Werner. So she's kidding herself, of course. She really is in love with him. How could a young woman not like this? I mean, this kind of adulation? I mean, this sort of worship? I mean, Albert certainly doesn't give her that. I mean, Albert gives her herring, right? Albert gives her food, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not going to work. So Werther is, is hurt, desperately hurt, wounded to the soul as a consequence of his kiss and rejection 
of Lotta. And he doesn't want an, an adulterous relation with Lotta. He wants Lotta completely. And he'd just like to get rid of Albert because he, he dislikes that kind of person on principle. It doesn't matter so much that he happens to be married to Lotta. He'd like to eliminate all the Alberts from the world. Now, Verda goes home and gets upset. He gets very, very upset. And sends out a servant to pay all his debts. Sits and calmly decides that he has to commit suicide. Which is to say, he is anything but calm, and he is anything but lucid. But this is like being at the eye of the hurricane. Not much is happening. It's a very quiet study he happens to be in. Because the external quietude is a kind of inverse of his turmoil internally. In other words, it's taken to its highest peak. The letters that he writes to Albert now become essentially incoherent, saying, I can't worship anything but Charlotte. Nothing matters but her. I, 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 I can't stop the running of my thoughts, the racing of my thoughts. And nowadays, when people get like that, they get medicated. I mean, in other words, you know, a doctor prescribes them something. But then it wasn't a disease, then it was the human condition. This is a different century. And he says, I finally calmly decided that I'm going to end my life. Harsh. Now, it gets worse. I mean, Goethe has such a touch. Uh, if you know that there are, there are athletes that are naturally strong or powerfully swift, but there's some athletes that have touch. I mean, have you ever seen a really good basketball player? All of them can go to the hoop, but not all of them have touch. Well, Goethe has touch. Oh, he's beautiful. In 10 pages where he knocks this guy off, I mean, there's hardly anything more wrenching in all of literature. First things first. He sends to Albert and Lotta, who are sitting there eating dinner. Now remember that she's been kissed by another man and she feels very guilty, but doesn't know what to say to bourgeois, prudent, swinish Albert. Right, he's home and she said, did you talk to Verda today and get rid of him? And she nervously and guiltily says, yes, yes I did. <laughs> and they're sitting there at the, the dinner table, you know, going away and talking to each other about mundane, useless, trivial things. And a note comes from Verda saying, he's going on a long trip and he wants to say goodbye. Goodbye. Now, Lotta has premonitions of his suicide. She knows that the guy's crazy. And at the, as a sort of postscript to the little note saying goodbye and wishing them all the best and giving his love, he says, uh, Albert, I'd like to borrow your pistols because, <laughs> because I need to protect myself on my journey. Oh, man, this is really harsh. Now, Lotta strongly suspects that he intends to commit suicide. But Lotta is undergoing, for the first time, some sort of psychological activity. She's, she feels terribly guilty about this and knows that prudent, swinish, bourgeois Albert is not going to understand their chaste, yet tremendously passionate love affair. So she's sitting there nervously thinking, what kind of trip is he going on? Is he leaving the, this locality or is he leaving this world? Or for that matter, has he always been outside this world? What kind of thing do we have here? So we get this, I mean, soap operas don't get this emotional, right? She sees the guy that she really loves, that she's not married to, borrowing pistols. And one of the big things is the last person to touch these pistols is Lotta. And when Werther's back in his study getting ready to blow his brains out, he thinks, he writes in his kind of, uh, in his final letter saying, I, I, I'm cheered by the fact and I'm much pleased by the fact that the last person to touch these pistols was you, Lotta. Please. <laughs> right? I mean, this is why romanticism is called romanticism. It takes emotion about as far as it's going to go. So a servant brings the pistols from Lotta's house and uh, 
Alberts is fine, is happy to get rid of Virtus. He's fine. He's going on a trip. By God, get rid of him. Let him go. It's about time he did. And he says, he tells the servant to say, hey, look, give him the pistols. Tell him he can return them whenever he wants. I wish him good luck on his journey. Right? I mean, the, the irony, they start to multiply and they get worse and worse and worse. And you can't read this without having your pulse race. In other words, you start breathing deeper and you realize what's going to happen. It's as inevitable as the, as the finale of a Greek tragedy. But you can't help but turn the pages. I mean, there are no book that makes you rip through the pages faster than this does. You start to read faster, you breathe faster, your heart beats faster, and you realize that you've been sucked into the romantic current. You are not going to get a better 100-page novel than this. I mean, if you have any emotional life at all, this will grab you. If you ever were a passionate, romantic 20-year-old, you will know, I mean, all right, I see that this is what it is. If you were not a passionate, romantic 20-year-old, you will understand what you were missing. <laughs> but either way, right, you can't have help but have this grab you by the throat, mo emotionally. Now, the pistols arrive, and Verter calmly and with great deliberation decides that he's going to clear up his debts because he wants to go out. I mean, <laughs> I guess this is tipping the hat to Albert's prudence. He wouldn't want to go owing anybody anything. He pays off his debts. He has no use for the money anyway. His trip isn't going to require money. And he sits at his desk and writes calmly, leaves a few letters, of course, leaves a little suicide note to Albert and Lotta, which is a charming little uh, addition, which is totally gratuitous, but it's the kind of thing that just heightens the emotional impact. And then orders a meal from his servants. He says, bring me in a last meal. What does he order? Bread and wine. <laughs> oh, Christ. This is a parody of the mass. It's a sort of black mass, which negates rather than affirms. It is organized towards despair rather than hope. Right? It is a nihilistic worship of himself rather than God, because there is nothing external to himself. So after this parody of the mass, at the stroke of midnight, Werther has great timing, puts a gun to his brain. Now, you'd figure that a guy that's as despairing and upset as Werther is, is going to want to do the job right. But no, he doesn't have much connection to the external world. So what he does is he puts the gun to his forehead rather than to the, you know, behind the ear to get things done properly. So naturally, he pulls the trigger and people hear the, the sound and you know, there's a flash, but since it's midnight, people assume that it just went off accidentally. No one figures a crazy verter. <laughs> right, I mean, there's a nice set of coincidences, but you don't ask too much of that in this kind of novel. Shoots himself, and then he doesn't even have the good grace to die. He lingers until noon the next day. So you want to get from, from midnight to high noon. Now, first of all, think about where he's put this, this uh, bullet. Uh, any of you know the Old Testament? You know the mark of Cain? Killed his own brother? The forehead, right you are. Here's a man who doesn't kill his own brother. He kills himself. And that's all there is to kill in the world because there's nothing else that's real. This is an abolition of reality altogether. Right? This is nihilistic ego worship. It's a way of saying that the romantic stance towards the world is ultimately self-destructive and nihilistic. He ends up with a parody of the mass, which indicates that he worships his own ego. He worships himself and always has. This is just making that explicit. And, of course, in the morning, the servant finds him. And he's going to linger for a couple of hours. This is a romantic novel. He can't just die. 
So he's going to be thrashing about, and we'll find, you know, he'll be found by his servant with a big chunk of his brain hanging out of this hole, but he won't die, which is be just like Werther, kind of perverse relationship with the rest of the world. And while thrashing about, they put him on the bed, and they know that he's going to die, but he doesn't get absolution. Why? A, because you can't give absolution to a suicide. It's outside of Christian theology. It's, it reflects despair, and remember that in Christian theology, the greatest conceivable sin is despair. Hope is one of the great Christian virtues. Suicides, by definition, have given up on this life. So by taking, by taking his own life, he is outside of the Christian religion. He is outside of organized society. He has given up on hope because he cannot satisfy his solipsistic, nihilistic desires. Well, he's thrashing about. Now we get a beautiful final page. I mean, the, Goethe just has such touch. I mean, you're not going to get somebody with better touch than this. Now you imagine, I mean, because what you would expect, given what's coming in, what's coming in the beginning in the middle of the novel, that when Lotta and Albert find out about this, right, there's going to be a terrible touching scene, and we're going to find out all about that. No, instead of of twelve pages of shrieking and moaning and oh my God, no, there's one line. I mean, I mean, not one sentence that goes for exactly one line, and he says, of Albert's of Albert's uh, grief and Lotta's. Uh, Disconcert, disconcertion, I will say nothing. In other words, it's so far, and it, it's beautiful because it's so understated, and it contrasts so dramatically with the rest of the thing that it makes it that much more forceful. I mean, that line by itself will knock you down. That's worth the price of admission by itself. Right? And then at the end of the novel, he does, he is good enough to die, thank God. And once he does manage to die, he's on the bed, and he's unable to get Christian burial. The, the last line is, he was buried in the ground outside the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the village or wherever. And the last line is, no clergyman attended. Now, that's a pregnant idea. The reason why no clergyman attended is, first of all, because Werther is his own clergyman. This was a kind of ceremony, a ceremony which negates rather than affirms life. Second of all, the second important reason why no clergyman attended is because Werther doesn't worship God, Werther worships himself. All naive, sentimental egoists worship themselves. What this solipsistic insistence that only my feelings, amount, uh, only my feelings are important amounts to is the idea that I am the creator of all value in the world. In other words, I am going to supplant God as the creator of order and value in the external world. And the external world exists only insofar as I'm willing to allow it to exist. Right? And there will be no light unless I say, let there be light. Forget God. That isn't important. God has been dispensed with. It turns out that this retreat into pure motion, this solipsistic negation of the world, is a sort of black mass, is a sort of alternative to Christian blessedness. And in that respect, it seems to me that the stance taken here by Goethe in many respects could be compared with the stance towards being adopted by D.H. Lawrence in the 20th century. Emotion, emotion, emotion. Of course, you get physicality in his conception of sex, but, well, I mean, some of it anyway. And the key thing is, is that I am the creator of all value. If any of you know something like the plumed serpent, new religions get constructed to supplant the ancient Christian religion. And these new religions that are being constructed are essentially all the same thing. They are nihilistic ego worship. I worship only myself. Werther thinks that he worships Charlotte. Actually, he worships his conception of Charlotte. 
uh, his conception of Charlotte relates to the real Charlotte the way the model for the Statue of Liberty relates to the real statue. There's just no comparison. There's such a tremendous disproportion between the two things. So Werther, as the creator of all value, as the man who mythically inflates some accidental and arbitrary thing to the status of a universally significant, or at least uh, personally significant thing, adopts a stance towards being that will be articulated and developed later on by D.H. Lawrence. The diff difference between the stance adopted by Werther here, and perhaps up to a point by Goethe himself, the difference between that and Lawrence is that Goethe is actually willing to face up to the nihilistic implications of this. In other words, this novel ends in death because all abolition of the external world amounts to the abolition of the self. The religious overtones are a way of suggesting, both in this novel and in the novels of Lawrence perhaps, that emotion is a new god that will take the place of the god of love and the god of hope, which had been the traditional foundation of Western culture. In other words, when we completely break off our connection to society, we also completely break off our connection to the sorts of value constructions that are characteristic of society, and these value constructions are life-giving. The reason why Lawrence is unwilling to face up to that is because I think that it's just too much. In other words, he's far too committed to this idea. In other words, he is, in some respects, a new uh, Werther who doesn't commit suicide. Goethe himself is sufficiently protean to kind of use this novel as a catharsis because he knew someone at that, at that age that he committed suicide. He had had an unrequited love affair. And what he manages to do is to fuse these things together in a sort of artistic creation that A, turns him into one, overnight into one of the great figures in Western European literature, and B, allows him to move on to new things to think about. That's why Goethe is so much more important and profound uh, 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 an artistic figure than Lawrence. Lawrence is a one-track mind. Emotion, 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 and that all amounts to sex, 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 and that all amounts to this world, this world, this world, and it's all variations on that same theme. Goethe, on the other hand, is sufficiently protean and sufficiently creative to start at that level and then to move on towards an affirmation of other things. You can't imagine someone who's bought into this complete worship of self and a sort of nihilistic, this-worldly insistence that emotion and desire are the only sources of value. You can't imagine that sort of person ultimately producing something like Faust. Because Faust spiritualizes this lust, turns it into a desire not just for sex or for sexual satisfaction, but also for knowledge, for beauty, for truth for abstract things which are still legitimate objects of desire. It's just that desire has been spiritualized rather than physicalized. Werther, in other words, represents a dead end that, that Goethe himself is able to overstep. And in the process of overstepping this and moving beyond it, he gets a catharsis for his own tremendous emotional turmoil. To achieve this at the age of 24, in the first important published work you kick out, and to write this in four weeks, makes, shows by itself that he's one of the great geniuses in the Western intellectual tradition. He's often compared with Shakespeare. Frankly, I don't think Shakespeare can stand in with him. I mean, I have the greatest admiration for him, but Shakespeare wasn't a statesman. Shakespeare didn't do much in the way of science. Shakespeare tried to stay pretty much within the realm of literature. Goethe can play in the same league with Shakespeare as a literary figure and do a great deal more. The Sorrows of Young Werther, of all the books that I've taught in the last couple of weeks kicking out these lectures, this is the one that, has the, that will pay you the most immediate dividends. I don't know anyone that doesn't think that this is a tremendous experience. Well worth your time. It doesn't require that you sell away two or three months of your life the way Faust does. And there is no one who will not be 
rewarded for giving the time and the thought, two hours or so, required to experience this novel. And the beautiful part about it is, is that you can experience it again and again, and it never really loses its flavor or its freshness or its beauty.